0: Hello, everyone. This is Trey Borden, and welcome to this episode of What We Gonna Do. Welcome to this episode of What We Gonna Do, where we're going to talk about this immigration crisis that we are still in. I think that in recent months, it's been really easy to um, kind of focus on other things. We have a presidential election We have kind of a racial reckoning. We have a a global pandemic that is extremely persistent and devastating to a lot of the country and the planet. Um, But I think this is an issue that uh, is extremely relevant, um, not just for us here in California, but for all of us across the nation. I think that the kind of crisis in some ways has propelled us into this presidency and the dangerous rhetoric um, that I think accompanied it. So, I wanted for us to kind of like take a break to kind of really consider where we are with this, um, how it's being in, you know, experienced by the people on the ground, by the advocates who are kind of pushing back on these policies and, you know, how we can kind of create a different system um, and why it's really important to be engaged right now with the political situation so that we can actually fight against this. So thank you so much for joining me, uh, Grizel and Lauren. So why don't we give the viewers just a brief um, introduction to who you are and kind of the advocacy work that you're doing. Let's start with Grizel.
1: Hi, it's so nice to join you to Trey and Lauren, even if it's remotely. Um, So my name is Griselle. I'm a Supervising Attorney at the Immigrant Legal Resource Center. We're a nonprofit based in San Francisco. We also have offices in in, uh, Texas and also DC, but we do or we engage in immigration policy and advocacy and training and education um, throughout the nation. Uh, I personally am on our, uh, I co-lead our enforcement team, which is basically the team of folks that we have compiled to push back on the disentanglement between local law enforcement and ICE. So think sanctuary policies, things like that. Um, I'm also on our CRIMM team, which means that I sort of dive into the technicalities of the intersection between the criminal system and the immigration system. For example, very few people know, and we'll talk about this today during this episode, that even minor offenses in the criminal space can have really drastic disproportionate consequences in the immigration space. Um, and then finally, I'm also the board chair for Freedom for Immigrants, I'm sorry, Freedom for Immigrants, which is a national nonprofit that um, advocates uh, to push back on immigration detention. And I'm also an immigrant myself. I was born in Mexico. Whole
0: Gamut, thank you, Griselle. Lauren? Good morning. Good morning. <laughs>
2: My name is Lauren Cusitello. Um, I am the legal director at the ABA Immigration Justice Project here on the US-Mexico border in San Diego. But I'm here today with you all just as, as Lauren Cusitello, immigration lawyer. I, I do not speak for the American Bar Association. I, I'm speaking for myself based on my experiences. And you know what I do is I primarily represent folks who are in immigration detention, which is a center run by a private corporation here in Otay Mesa, California. Uh, I, we, my team tries to get folks out of detention and, and also we represent people who are uh, not able to get out and have to do their whole case while they are still confined. and. Um, before i did this work and then part of what brought me to this work is i, I started working as a public defender uh 15 years ago believe it or not uh, i was a state public defender in miami florida and then i was a federal public defender uh, both in sacramento and uh here in san diego and it wasn't until i got to federal court that i had any idea that you know we grew up hearing the expression, make a federal case out of it. You think it's about bank robberies and train heists and things like that. But the single most prosecuted crime in federal court is re-entering the United States after you've been removed. It's more than half of criminal prosecutions every year. And, and so in representing people who were charged with that crime and realizing most of my clients had not been represented by counsel when they were ordered removed from the country in the first place, I, I became increasingly uh, aware aware and concerned about the injustice in the immigration system. Um, and, and that's what brought me to eventually working in removal defense. It's bringing some of that public defense spirit to, to the defense of removal cases in the immigration system, where people have far fewer rights, do not have the right to appoint a counsel, all of those things. And that work, of course, has has brought me to activism as well. Um, before I was here at the ABA, and, and even now, uh, I participate in local immigrant rights groups i'm wearing my sdirc t-shirt today the san diego immigrant rights consortium and um and through that work uh grisels organization um, freedom for immigrants helped us create a bond fund here at the border to pay the bonds of people who have been ordered released from custody but can't afford to get out um, and 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 so we we sort of mirrored the work that they were doing up there in the Bay and and created a fund down here and and have seen a movement for the same kind of funds to support immigrants that we've also seen in the bail reform criminal uh, arena for for a few years now. Um, And so I'm happy to talk about any of those things and more, um, but I'm really happy to be here speaking with both of you.
0: Well, thanks so much for both of you. I'm glad that your organizations are already collaborating. I feel like this is a great relationship to establish. I'm glad to introduce you to you more formally. Um, and I also am really interested to talk about this kind of intersection between kind of all this rhetoric around criminal justice reform and immigration reform, because there's a lot of overlap that I think people aren't as consciously aware of as they should be. So very briefly, I feel like in this space, there's a lot of misinformation um, about what the immigrant kind of situation even is in the U.S., you know, where they come from, how many people are we talking about, where do they even live, you know, you know, are they criminals or not? And so um, I think if we could just briefly give people a sense of, like, what is the situation? um, Whichever you wants to kind of speak to that.
2: Do you want to start yourself? (laughs) Go ahead, Laura. Well, I'm just going to start with with California, because California really, part of the reason that we are so progressive compared to other communities in our policies related to immigration is because we have the largest immigration population, immigrant population of of any state in the United States, Um, you know, one in four people who live in the state of California was born outside of the United States. And that's irrespective of whether they have, you know, authorized immigration status or not. Um, And another one in four residents, there's some overlap there has at least one parent who was born Outside the United States, so the, you know this is a community made by immigrants that has always uh, had a large immigrant population, and you know most of California was was already part of the Republic of Mexico before it became the United States. So especially here in Southern California, there is a shared identity of so many families that goes back generations as uh, as being both of the United States and of Mexico. And here in San Diego, we have so many families that are cross-border families where people sometimes legally live on both sides. Sometimes the family is separated by the physical border. Um, But the facts are that in terms of immigration and crime, um, immigrants overall commit crimes at a lower rate than people who are born in the United States. Um, And uh, communities that support immigrants have lower crime rates. The sanctuary communities actually have lower crime rates than communities that don't have so-called sanctuary policies, policies of, of not, you know, turning their residents over without warrants to immigration officials. Um, so while it is true that, that people of all immigration statuses do violate the law, sometimes it is not true other than the criminalization of the of migration itself, which is a crime that can only be committed if you're not a citizen, that immigrants commit more crimes than people who were born in the United States. It's it's just not so the opposite is true. Um, So I'll start there. Um, Our our community uh, in in San Diego is not just, you know, a Mexican United States community either um, because we're at the border, uh, the the southern land border, and the San Ysidro port of entry here in San Diego is the busiest land port of entry in the Western Hemisphere in terms of daily crossings. We see people from all over the world, and San Diego has also been a refugee resettlement city for a long time before policies change. And we still resettle refugees here, but the numbers have gone down in this administration. So there are San diegans from iraq syria afghanistan from sudan somalia eritrea we we really and of course you know we have a large population of folks who came in one of the First groups of people kind of recognized as resettled refugees, people from Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, following the Vietnam War. Um, and, and so, you know, the immigrant population is not just sort of who it's portrayed to be on the news either. It's not just Mexican. It's also not the, the more recent group of folks arriving at the border over the last five to 10 years, Central Americans fleeing gang violence and, and crime in, in the Northern Triangle. We really the immigrants are from all over the world. It's true. And um, I I personally volunteered at a high school here in San Diego where 94 different languages were spoken by the student body. Um, so, you know, I think it's easy to kind of paint immigrants with a particular stereotype or set of, of brushes and images, but it's, it really is kind of the whole beautiful rainbow of, of people from all over the world, all cultures, all
0: religions. Uh, and, Grizel, would you add anything to that?
1: Um, very little. That was a, <laughs> that was excellent. Uh, Lauren hit all the big points. Uh, I think the only thing I would add is just um, adding to the tapestry of diversity that we have in the U.S. Um, you know, I was born in Mexico originally. I'm I'm an immigrant. My husband's an immigrant. His family's from India. Very different immigration stories. But um, uh, the one thing I will add is that. Um, especially since we are in this moment where everybody's really thinking critically about racism at a, at a new level. Um, we have black immigrants as well, which is what, one of the many reasons why when it comes to demands like defund the police, when it comes to Black Lives Matter, it's so important for immigrant rights groups to show up, Um, not just because it's the moral thing to do, because there's so much intersectionality. And not surprisingly, when it comes to black immigrants, they do disproportionately receive the brunt of some of the really terrible enforcement actions actions that we see um, in terms of who's arrested by ICE, who's detained by ICE. Um, which is really a system of our country's larger mass incarceration system. So that's the, that's the only thing I would add is that, um, you know, highlighting that we do have black immigrants, that they regrettably do receive a disproportionate um, sort of brunt of how immigration enforcement happens and the really ugly parts of immigration uh, enforcement by the federal government. Um, and that's really why um, immigration, like so many other issues, is so tremendously intersectional.
0: And I think that, um, you know, kind of, that's a good overview of what kind of who are immigrants and what that situation is. I think another thing I'd like to touch on before we go into kind of what we're experiencing now is kind of how we got here. You mentioned ICE, which is what most of us think of in terms of policies and kind of like who is impacting these communities. But ICE is just kind of carrying out the policies that are set by our government. Um, And so I wanted to kind of see if you could give us like a little bit of a history of the policies that have led us to this point. Grizel, if you want to talk about, you know, the 90, 1996 immigration bill, which made people think of the crime bill. They don't really think about this bill that really has like ratcheted up all of these problems and kind of abuses that we've seen. And then, you know, Obama, who's, you know, well known for kind of the DACA um, legislation that kind of, you know, allowed a lot of people to kind of find a pathway to citizenship and to avoid kind of deportation, but also was known as the deporter in chief. So. Do you care to kind of give us a little bit of context for that as well?
1: Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, So I'm so glad that you brought up the 1996 laws because it really puts all of our systems into perspective. This isn't something that came up overnight. Um, this is something, we saw some really, really drastic changes in uh, in our immigration laws um, around 1996, and there have been various campaigns um, to go back and see what we can do to, to totally revamp that system. And I'll, I'll list some resources at the very end. Um, this is also a great opportunity to talk about um, intersectionality, because you really see what happened in 1996 in immigration laws um, did feed uh, partially from what was happening in the criminal system. Um, so... Uh, Taking even a bigger step back, it's it's no surprise that we have such harsh immigration enforcement and such uh, such huge reliance on immigration detention. Um, as Lauren was describing, the practice of detaining people for the duration or for some part of their removal proceedings. Um, it's no surprise when we have that we have the largest immigration detention system in the world when the U.S. already has the largest carceral state in the world. The U.S. has about 25% of the incarcerated population in the world, yet we only have 5% of the world's population. Um, So just to give you a signal of of how uh, our immigration system really is indicative of some of the problems we have in the criminal system. Um, So I'm going to talk about the 1996 laws. Um, in the context of also the war on drugs. Um, So the war on drugs, uh, as folks uh, may remember, um, something that was started by Nixon, Reagan really doubled down on it, and it really resulted at the federal and at the state level on a series of misguided drug laws, extreme sentencing that, by the way, also resulted in really, really huge sentencing disparities when it comes to race as well. Um, So within that context, in 1996, we had a series of laws that dramatically changed the landscape in immigration law. Um, we had IRA, IRA, and EDPA. Um, I won't go into, those are the acronyms, so we won't go into the long names. Um, but through, uh, through those laws, we had um, just a drastic, some drastic changes. So for example, we had the start of programs like 287G, which is arguably the worst immigration enforcement program that we have. And we have a lot, by the way. Yes. 27G is a program where local law enforcement are actually deputized to act as ICE agents for your local cop, your local sheriff can switch off his ICE his or her ICE and, and local law enforcement caps. Um, we also uh, uh, had um, some big changes in terms of judges uh, having less discretion and really sort of seeing the immigration mobile system. And it was extremely broken. But in many cases, and Lauren, who's in the trenches, can definitely speak to this um, uh, at a much a deeper level. But you know, in a lot of immigration proceedings, it's basically the immigration judge rubber stamping ICE's charges because the judge's hands are actually tied in a series of ways in terms of when they can grant bond, when they can grant immigration relief, et cetera. So, and one of Ira Ira's most draconian features, of which there are many, um, was really inspired by the war on drugs. So um, with Ira Ira, um, uh, after Ira, Ira, uh, we got the result that even a simple drug conviction, um, so we're talking, it could be a simple drug possession, it can be from many years ago, it can be the type of thing that any other person would just get a slap on the wrist on, or maybe now in this moment, we're really thinking about legalizing marijuana, and I think it's over 30 states have legalized it to some degree. Um, what we have in immigration system is if you have a prior possession, um, that's something that can result in really, really drastic consequences for the immigration case. Um, you have a possession, and suddenly you could be permanently barred from ever getting a green card. If you're a green card holder, you can be placed in deportation proceedings. You won't be able to naturalize, you might not be able to get bond. So suddenly all of these barriers come up, even with something minor, even with something in the inner criminal system we might get a slap on the wrist on, or you might be even in a situation where the criminal judge says, oh, this is actually erased, when in reality it's not erased for your immigration case. So that's just to give you an example of um, some of the really terrible changes that we saw as a result and that have really sort of formed the basis of how bad things are right now. Um, And if you're interested in learning more, there are a lot of groups who've been working to fix 96 or go back and try to entirely replace that broken regime. Um, And if you're really interested in getting more information, go to immigrantjusticenetwork.org to get more information about these laws and what you can do to plug in and assess them.
0: Can't hear you. can hear you. I'm sorry. Can you hear me now? Oh yay! Um, so uh, thank you for that overview, Grizel. I was saying, Lauren, if you could maybe speak to kind of how we built upon those draconian um, new policies that you know Obama enforced to a degree, even with something like DACA also kind of trying to make up for some of those uh, abuses, and then kind of. Leading up to the Trump administration,
2: absolutely. So, so I, I think in a lot of ways, what we've seen in the immigration area is a hundred percent reflective of what we've seen across this administration, which is that so much of our governmental structure relies on obedience to norms and use of discretion. And we've given the executive branch really broad discretion to govern in a way that the constitutional founders never intended for the most part. Um, the you know the expansion of the executive states who include things like immigration agencies with this level of law enforcement power, I I think would have been unimaginable to the people who wrote the Constitution, most of whom were not born in the United States, not even in colonial territory. Um, But um, so an example of that is so when, when we talk about what was changed in the procedures in, in 1996 and, and the discretion that judges had and the discretion that individual enforcement officers had, um, DACA is an example there, there of course, was a a battle that went all the way to the Supreme Court about whether it was an overstepping of the discretion and authority that the executive had. But that's where that policy came from, was was the fact that there is built into the law discretion to enforce or not to enforce, just like any police officer or prosecutor has with criminal laws. Um, And just like the Justice Department has with other civil laws as well. Um, and, And so just like we've seen Seen the Justice Department step away from enforcement in the civil rights space during this administration. We've seen them move in the direction of enforcement, where the Obama administration made very complicated choices, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure we're going to talk about some of those in a second. But DACA was a blanket policy. To say we want this discretion to be exercised in a clear and equitable and transparent way. And so DACA said we will not enforce the immigration laws. We will grant a benefit known as deferred action, which is essentially a promise not to prosecute you in the civil sense. We will grant, and then we will grant work authorization, the most controversial part of DACA, uh, to people who meet a certain set of criteria, who come forward identify themselves and apply. Um, The the flip side, what we've seen in this administration um, is, for example, there are many people and and what we saw in the early, especially early days of the administration, many people who had been ordered removed by a judge because the, the laws that were passed in 96 gives some people no real option once they have been encountered and placed into some kind of removal proceeding um, in immigration court. Um, some some people, there, there's nothing that can happen but removal, an order of removal, um, and yet Uh, What you would see the agency do in its discretion was grant what they call a stay. So each year they would say you can stay here one more year. You don't have lawful status. We're not promising that this is going to last forever. But often, for example, parents of high needs children who are US citizens or who couldn't get the treatment that they need in, in the country, they would be removed to or sometimes when the, the person with the removal order had a serious medical condition, just in an exercise of mercy, just like a governor or a president can grant a pardon or clemency or commute a sentence, it, it's the immigration equivalent of that, that they would exercise discretion to say, yes, it was legal to order you removed, but it's not necessary to execute that order um as long as you don't do anything to show that you're dangerous to the community or that you're disappearing or anything along those lines and there were people who had been reporting like that for years um and then in the early days of of this administration you saw a lot of those stays either not being removed or being terminated and people with very short notice being removed from the United States with, you know, no recourse because the order had been final for years. Um, and, And um, and so that's an example of the way in which really the discretion has gone from one end of the spectrum for the most part to the far other end of the the spectrum and that we've created laws that give that room. But like we've seen across so many areas where we're trusting the president or trusting the people the president appoints to enforce the laws or apply the laws in a way that's equitable and merciful and kind and humane. this administration has overwhelmingly failed to do that. And, and in fact, leaned in the direction of enforcing the laws in an inhumane and cruel way with the intention of deterring uh, any kind of migration or seeking of refuge based on the way in which they exercise their discretion.
0: Well, okay, so now we're kind of venturing in. I mean, we've kind of, we could have overviewed Obama, you know, who used, you know, I think we can say had a complex, Uh, view and stance on immigration um but i think that what we are now all very aware of is the types of i mean beyond just kind of the discretion change we've seen some policies that are like especially cruel and punitive that this administration has um promoted you know as a part of why they should stay in power and kind of enact the republican agenda um and let's go over some of those grizel you might want to speak to we you know we've seen the child separation we know about the muslim ban i mean kind of define what this era has really meant in terms of like a change in tone and kind of intended impact
1: yeah sure and i think this also is really um forces us to ask some critical questions about all of our systems. This is actually something I've been reflecting on, on a lot recently. You know, Who writes our laws? Who enforces our laws? And whom are those laws enforced against? Whether we're talking immigration, whether we're talking the criminal system, is that if you took a photo of who is in each of those categories, it's not surprising that it's largely defined by race and class. Um, so I just want to note that just because I think that um, there really is so much intersectionality over what's happening in the immigration system and in the criminal system. And so when we're calling for things like it's not enough to reform the systems, we need to abolish and rebuild, I think that that, that really carries through to immigration as well. Um, so in terms of uh, some of the things that we've seen in the Trump era, and I might focus just on um, sort of the criminalization framing that we've seen, um, which by the way, isn't new in terms of the Trump administration. In fact, it is something that we saw even under the Obama administration. Um, When Obama was um, uh, announcing some changes in in the manner in which he was going to enforce immigration law um, uh, apart or in addition to DACA, so people who weren't covered under DACA, um, he, the, what he announced was that he was going to go against, or the, the federal government was going to pursue felons and not families.
0: Um, and so like, like, like felons don't have families.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That is a critical piece that was totally lost in the narrative. And yet a piece that underlies all of the problems that we've seen. And quite frankly, something that Trump has just doubled down on, um, You know, uh, ICE actually issues uh, on a regular basis how many people they arrest, and it's just a laundry list of the worst things that they can find out about people so that they can criminalize them as much as possible to justify all of their practices. Because you call someone a criminal in the U.S., you can do anything to them. They don't deserve a lawyer. They don't deserve due process. Who cares if you separate them from their families? Um, And again, this is something that we see to varying levels in both the criminal and in the immigration system. Um, And so that's, I think, one thing that has been incredibly damaging, this good versus bad immigrant. Um, uh, You know, you're deserving, maybe you might be deserving of justice if you're, you know, the undocumented student who got into Harvard. But what if you're something less than a saint? Are you not deserving of justice? Are you not deserving of dignity? Um, And so exactly, I think you hit the nail on the head, Trey, when you said, Well, you know, felons or people with felony convictions also have families. Um, So actually, when we saw uh, when President, former President Obama um, was announcing that change in policy and saying they were only going against felons, not families, just for a a few stats. um, When he spoke those words, more than 2.7 million children in the U.S. had an incarcerated parent Um, nationally, there were more than 120,000 incarcerated mothers. And 1.1 million incarcerated fathers with minor children. Uh, in fact, there were s- the the issue is so pervasive um, that Sesame Street actually introduced a new Muppet, um, mm-hmm. Alex, who had a parent in jail. Total aside, um, I don't have kids, but Sesame's inc- Sesame Sesame Street is incredibly woke. I feel like I might start watching. Yes. It. <laughs> All of these undertones, um, but, but again, the Trump administration has really doubled down on this on this narrative, and it's really been um, kind of at the heart of um, some of the problems, uh, some of the policy decisions that we've seen. So when it, he's really, really drastically attacked um, what we used to be, we used to call them community policing policies. Today, in the narrative, they're called sanctuary policies. But again, that practice to say why is our local law enforcement helping ICE? Why is our local law enforcement dedicating local resources to assist this huge, incredibly well-funded federal agency? Um, And so that's actually something that happens in almost every jurisdiction in the U.S., um, that our local law enforcement will to some degree help the federal government identify, deport, detain people. Um, That's something that Trump has really doubled down on. That was one of the things that when he came in, he said he was going to go after those Jurisdictions, he was going to try to engage more law enforcement to dig deeper and to assist the federal government even more. And that's all been under this narrative of, oh, we need to go after the bad people, we need to go after the felons. Again, totally misunderstanding that these Do have families and quite frankly, um, I think it's, it's, um, you know, if we're really, really taking a close look at how broken our criminal system is um, all of that really carries through into the immigration system as well. Um, all of this feeds into the border crisis as well, or, or what's sort of what we've seen at the, at the border. But um, I'll let uh, Lauren talk about some of the individual policies that she's seen.
2: So I, I think that, Christelle is absolutely right that there, you know, I've been saying for a long time that that we've we've been years deep into a movement that's finally really seeing kind of the fruits of its labor to say. You know i was lucky enough to take professor stevenson's class in law school but no, you know nobody should be boiled down to the worst thing they've ever done but unfortunately we've added the, the coda to that that nobody should be boiled down to the worst thing they've ever done if they were born in the united states um because and and i mean which is not even to say that possession of methamphetamine is necessarily even the worst thing that somebody's ever done but it can literally, you know, end that person's life and end their family's life as a unit in this country if um, they are not a permanent resident or, or don't have authorized status. There, there is no legal way to immigrate with a drug conviction, um, and and that I mean that's where when we go back to you know, 96. I don't think if we were to pass even some version of those laws today that we would treat drugs as harshly as we did then, because I think we've made a lot of progress in recognizing that drug abuse is a public health problem and that it's often a symptom of the lack of mental health resources that we have in our community and and also culturally the United States is not that much better than other cultures, but certainly a lot of the, the cultures that the people we work with come from. Uh, you know, seeking mental help <laughs> mental mental health treatment is not considered sort of acceptable, especially um, if you're a provider or the the breadwinner in your family to admit that you're living with depression or living with another mental illness. And and so many people do turn to occasional drug or alcohol use to sort of self-medicate. Um, including when there are, are no resources available or no affordable resources and and so I you know, I, I think especially with drugs, the, the draconian consequences that we place on even misdemeanor, minor drug offenses in terms of complete loss of status and, and loss of really any waivers or alternatives for so many people with those kind of histories um is you know is something that really if if most people knew about it and and heard the stories of the people affected um i think there would be a movement to reconsider that first of all but then yeah when you look at what's happening at the border um you know the the concept of asylum the the what it means to seek asylum in this country is so um, misunderstood, certainly, but just not understood at all. Uh, it, I think, certainly the idea that it, it would have been better had we granted something like asylum to people who were persecuted and, and murdered and victimized by the genocide during World War Two, and and understanding that's what led to the treaties, the the beginning of the international conversation that led to the laws we have now. Um, But different countries implement those treaties and those laws in very different ways and in the United States. Unlike Canada to the north and Mexico to the south, we have no category of visa or permit or you know temporary permission to be present in the United States that's based on the fact that you are afraid. Um, if you come to the border of the United States and you have your passport from, you know, Myanmar or. Chechnya or Sudan or a country where, you know, there's clearly persecution going on uh, or a region where there's persecution going on. You come and you say I'm here because I have suffered persecution. I had to flee and you don't have a visa to enter the United States. The law is that it is mandatory for the United States government to detain you in a jail. They'll call it detention, but it's the same jail where people facing criminal charges are incarcerated. That you are not eligible for bond and uh, that if you are released at some point, you will not be eligible to work inside the United States while you're trying to convince a judge to grant you that status until you've been waiting for six months. So for six months after you're released, generally for six months, you have to find some way to sustain yourself or rely on the kindness of the community or supporters um, while you are here fleeing for your safety and the safety of your family. And I, I don't think most people know that. That that's this that's the situation we were dealing with even before the policies we've seen put into place over the last few years. And um, so what we've seen before the pandemic um, was An attempt to ban requests for asylum by people who didn't knock on the door at the port of entry now what happens if you knock on the door is what i just said they first they hold you in the border patrol station it's not supposed to be longer than 48 hours but regularly people are held for five six seven days before they're transferred anywhere else and they're regularly held in what our clients Most of our clients refer to as hileras, which translates to ice boxes um, because it's so cold. So many people are held in the same space. Um, We hear stories of people literally having frozen burritos sort of tossed into the room like they're animals in a cage. I think we've all seen photos of the, uh, you know, foil blankets that are, you know, emergency blankets essentially because it's constantly treated like this is something that border patrol doesn't expect to have to deal with on a regular basis. Um, And so many people don't want to put themselves or their children in that situation and go around, Uh, And also many people who are attempting to come here and seek protection, you know, have to rely on smugglers because the the violence and crime along the journey is very dangerous. And and most people don't know the way Uh, people who are not from the region have no reason to know how to get to the border. And, And so the first thing this administration tried to do is say if you didn't go and wait at the port of entry and ask an immigration officer there to put you in jail and, and make you wait for a judge and make you wait for an interview to even determine whether we believe that your fear is real enough that you get to see a judge. People who made the choice not to put themselves in that situation, that they wouldn't be allowed to apply for asylum at all, and that they would be automatically denied. Um, even though the law says a person who is president in the United States without any regard for how they arrived in the United States is, is eligible to apply for asylum. Uh, the administration tried to issue an executive order ending basically contradicting the, the law passed by Congress. Um, and that first attempt has been shut down so far. The second attempt uh, was to say that people who, went through a third country that is not the country that they have fled and did not seek asylum in that third country first and can't explain why that those people are not eligible for asylum. Um, And Another thing. That is happening now is, is that they are attempting to completely change the process by which people who present themselves in the border region seeking asylum um, are sort of sorted for lack of a better term into people who are eligible to move forward in the process and people who aren't right now. Um, people are it's it's required the people who are encountered by immigration authorities, either directly at the port of entry or or somewhere in the border region when they're still determined to be kind of in the arriving stage. um, Those people are entitled to what is called a credible fear interview, which is when an asylum officer interviews, the person about why they fled their country and why they fear violence or threats of violence if they're returned to that country. And then that officer doesn't decide you get asylum or you don't. The officer just says you you have a credible enough claim in that I understand your story and, and if your story is true and you can corroborate it, that it would qualify you potentially for asylum, uh, that you should be able to present this to an immigration judge. Uh, the administration has proposed essentially allowing the agency to decide what that process looks like. Um, the agency has set up this process for years now. It's looked like this uh, and what they want to do. We, we don't know exactly, uh, but what most people predict is that that process would all happen in a border patrol station or in the port of entry holding cells or or even in on the other side of the border for people that are apprehended along the border that just like we're making people wait in Mexico to come to court right now, that we would set up tents or camps or things like that along the border and hold people there and do that whole process there um, without not not with trained asylum officers who research conditions in the various countries that people regularly flee, but Border Patrol officers who require nothing more than that that law enforcement training that they get at the beginning of their career. And other than that, their training is all law enforcement related. They they don't receive the robust training in human rights law and asylum law and the conditions in various countries around the world that people whose role is to be an asylum officer get. They wanna take those folks out of the process. And um, and so regardless of what you think about people entering illegally, there is no legal way to enter if the only reason you are coming here is because you are fleeing for your life, um, th- there's no legal way to do that on emergency notice. You can ask for the agency to exercise its discretion and allow you to enter there, but there is no permit you can apply for. You can apply for a tourist visa and it will probably be denied. Um, I mean, th- that-
0: I mean what's, what's really like characterizing all of this for me and I think what's characterized a lot of the protests that we've seen recently is just like, our, sisters, our system seems designed to prey upon the absolute most vulnerable people that we encounter, and that we criminalize them. That we don't even give them the rights that we say they they have. And I think that like we're just going to see more of that should this administration, you know, continue to be in power. Not to mention how absolutely demoralizing this is. For you guys on the ground who are actually like encountering these families or you know trying to fight against these policies i mean i can't imagine how you know getting up every day understanding what you're up against or kind of getting up every day in a detention cell having no idea what's going to happen to you um affects someone you know and, and the long-term effects of these policies i think we have only begun to kind of scratch the surface of so you know i know that we have limited time so i think that what i'd like to talk about now if we can is like what are we doing to change this situation? I think what we've outlined is uh, obviously an incredibly inhuman or inhumane process that can't be allowed to persist any longer than absolutely necessary. So, you know, Grizel, maybe you can kind of start us off with like, what is being done to kind of counteract all of this?
1: Yeah, of course. So um, as we've been discussing federal immigration law, a lot of, uh, when, we, when we talk about our very, when we talk about immigration law, we are talking about federal laws. Um, And so there is a tremendous amount of of work being done to think through how we might be able to change these laws um, at the federal level. However, there's still a tremendous amount that can be done at the state and local level, because as we've discussed, it turns out that our local agencies actually play a tremendous role in propping up and supporting the federal government's detention and removal system. And so there is a lot of advocacy that has been done at the local and state level. Um, and so in California, for example, and I'll focus on California just because that's where I'm based, but there is a lot of really exciting work happening in other states like Washington, New Mexico, etc. Um, but in California, one thing that we've done is pass a series of laws and policies at the state and at the local level to pull our local governments out of these unnecessary uh, methods of cooperation. Um, and so at the state level, for example, we've passed a series of laws on immigration detention to, again, pull our state back from supporting that system and also to um, insert some oversight of the this, of this system at the state level. Um, at the local level uh, and also at the state level, we've also passed a series of sanctuary policies where, again, we ensure that our local law enforcement isn't uh, assisting the federal government um, unnecessarily. So those are some of the things that we've done just to provide a little bit of backdrop. And that's actually just sort of a, a, a hint at what we've done. We've also done things like um, actually make changes in the criminal code um, to ensure that we have fewer of these disproportionate impacts, i.e. someone gets a, a, a minor or even more serious criminal offense, but then it has these huge drastically disproportionate Uh, consequences in the immigration case. So we've actually also made tweaks in the criminal system to lessen or mitigate some of that impact. But the one thing I'll focus on uh, for the moment is um, some of the local fights that um, have happened to push back on immigration detention. Um, And I think it's important to focus on on all of those because one thing that I think people are um, rightly so really being conscious of is um, ensuring that this movement is led by impact. Um, led by the individuals who themselves have been incarcerated or have family members who have been incarcerated or have been impacted very directly by this immigration system in some way. And so in the city of McFarland, um, which is a a small city um, in Southern California um, in a remote, more remote area, um, the community there has been organizing to stop two new immigration detention centers um, from being added. And as Lauren uh, uh, described, you know, we always say immigration detention in the field, but these are jails. These feel, they smell, they look, they they are jails in, in every sense of the word. Um, and so there what's happening is that um, uh, GEO, which is the largest prison corporation in the nation, and as an aside...
0: Um, the they are private, the worst. They are the worst. They are the worst.
1: Private prisons play a tremendous role in the immigration system, but I do want to just note that all, all of these cages are problematic. Whether whether GEO runs them, whether it's the feds running them, they're all problematic. They're all unnecessary. Um, but uh, uh, here in the city of McFarland, um, basically GEO has been. It really feels like they're sort of orchestrating um, the addition of these two new detention centers with the city of McFarland. Um, uh, we passed uh, the ILRC uh, co-sponsored and passed a law along with Freedom for Immigrants and along with a series of other organizations in the statewide coalition called the California. Not Detention Coalition, passed a law called SB 29, uh, the Digging Not Detention Act, which basically said that, um, among other things, if a city is going to consider this type of permit, they need to do it in a way that provides some process whereby the community actually has an opportunity to be part of this decision-making process, that they have noticed that this is going to happen, that they have an opportunity to attend hearings, and that there are a series of Hearings to ensure that the community is part of this process. And civic engagement is obviously so important, especially on the eve of an election. Um, and so basically what happened in January is the community got noticed that uh, the city was considering these two new detention centers, and that was sort of the start of a six-month battle where the community was turning out by the hundreds. And this is actually significant because McFarland is actually a fairly small town. Um, and in terms of who was turning out, it was farm workers. It was essential workers. Who are out in the fields in the fires put, playing a crucial role in putting food on our all of our table and they were all coming out at every single hearing telling the city council loud and clear we don't want these facilities these are this, this is not what's right for our community this is not what we want in fact we'll we'll consider going elsewhere this is not what's right for our community um, and when you think about elected officials isn't their job to do what's best for their community isn't their job to represent what their community wants. Um, and unfortunately, so here what happened is um, at the Planning Commission, which was the first stage of where this was being considered, the community actually won, um, which was just a tremendous like David and Goliath type battle, because you can only imagine how many resources someone like Gio might be dumping into this fight, because these two jails mean big money for them. Um, For the community, though, the stakes are even higher because it's not about money, it's about human life. Mm. It's about their brothers and sisters. It's about their community. Um, And so they actually won at the Planning Commission level. after that, the, the issue was appealed up to the city council. And at the city council level, um, uh, Geo actually uh, in during the public record actually said, I will, we will pay $1,000 scholarships to all their seniors here if we get a unanimous vote support. And that's something that they said blatantly on record. Um, so regrettably, the city council did approve to uh, um, proceed with the permits. Um, uh, shortly after that, they approved the permits. Um, we, uh, our organization actually sued the city of McFarland, um, along with Freedom for Immigrants, um, uh, to basically say that these permits were approved in violation of state law um, with, a, with an effort to vacate those permits. Um, so there, uh, there's a tremendous amount of um, uh, action that's still happening with that case, and there's a, a, another case um, uh, that the ACLU filed Um, uh, alleging other uh, violations of other state laws. Um, So there's a lot of activity and still a tremendous amount of organizing. I think that's going to be a a fight to watch. Um, And then the one thing I will mention, um, and and actually part of the reason I kind of need to scurry off is I have a relevant call on on another city. Um, So in the city of Otolanto, which is another city that's close by, Atalanto is actually the home to the largest detention center in the state, um, one of the largest in the nation. And they are also considering the addition of a new immigration jail also with GEO. Um, And so they actually have their final uh, city council vote happening tomorrow, Wednesday in the evening. So especially for folks in the high desert in that area, um, uh, Trey, I I will send you that call to action. Um, If folks can uh, reach out to the city council members there and and tell them loud and clear that that this isn't something that's right for their community. But all that to say, um, you know, there are policy changes and efforts happening at all the different stages, but I think one of the things that has inspired me most in this movement, despite how depressing it could be sometimes, is just the power of the community, you know, and the power of, 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 um, of immigrants.
0: Well, thank you so much, Grizel. and, I, you know, if you have to scurry off, we really appreciate you being here. I mean, keep fighting the good fight, and we'll definitely share some more information about those calls to action. Um, it is... Amazing when there are victories because you know how much money and political power is behind these detention centers and how corrupt our government is that they're very susceptible to the types of lobbying efforts that these organizations employ. So, um, I think it is important to kind of highlight the bright spots and the opportunity for community based change. Um, and so Lauren, like, you know, anything you'd add to there by Grizel? Thank you so much. Um, I think the kind of like understanding what's at stake. Uh, before we kind of go into any more calls to action, like what does it look like if we, if this administration kind of continues four more years, um, what type of impact might that have? I mean, I, I hate to traumatize all of us by, you know, thinking about that possibility, but I just want to understand what would happen to the extent we can Yeah,
2: Yeah. Um, it, it really depends on the perspective from which you ask the question. If you're asking the question from the perspective of, you know, Central Americans fleeing violence, um, who are the the people for whom the door has been shut most dramatically and cruelly, um, people will die or be tortured or be persecuted. And um, it, it comes up regularly in our work, Um, in the sort of advocacy and outreach and messaging part of our work, that it is worth remembering that our country Tells ourselves stories about ourselves and our history, uh, and and often tries to forget the stories that we don't want to tell. But this is a country that denied a visa to Anne Frank. This is a country that turned a ship of refugees around during World War II, and the laws we have now are part in, in part to atone for that. And um, and so we we have already. There, there are plenty of things that have happened over the last few years that we will be atoning for, but if this continues for four more years, I, I expect more cruelty and more tragedy that would be preventable. My The source of hope that I have is, is that other countries might recognize that the United States is no longer a safe place for refugees to seek refuge for people. We call it asylum seeking if you come on your own rather than being resettled by an agency. But uh, we distinguish when we talk about folks between people seeking asylum or people who are refugees and people who are immigrating by choice. Certainly fewer people are immigrating by choice to the United States because we have created this invisible wall of regulations and increased fees and delays in processing applications, not to mention just the cultural and rhetorical hostility that foreign born people in this country are experiencing, especially if they are not from Western European nations, or if they are from those nations, but their skin color bill eyes, their origin. Um, and, And so looking at it from the perspective of business owners or universities or the regions of the board of the University of California who have been participants in almost every lawsuit related to these policies because they recognize that we will lose the diversity of experience and perspective and ideas and ingenuity and and everything that comes with legal immigration if we restrict what legal immigration looks like. Um, And um, we will, separate families by force Um, that there was a lot of attention paid to the separation of families at the border which was a a true tragedy and and humanitarian uh, just wrong Um, but it was telling that then secretary kirsten nielsen said that It's inherent in law enforcement that, you know, we never arrest the child with the parent and and sheriffs and local law enforcement officials were saying it's, you know, it's inherent in law enforcement that families be separated, at least temporarily, Um, but removal. Is a permanent separation. Uh, uh, the only alternative is for the person to commit the federal crime of returning to the United States. And so, if we continue in this direction, um, we will we will see families with citizen children who have never known any other country separated from their parents who are removed um, to to someplace else. And. Um, and, and, and I know this sounds uh, hyperbolic, but we will have lost something of who we are if we don't, you know, I, I'm proud of our community and, and the international community for recognizing once people became aware of the the inhumane family separation crisis at the border, that that, that was not who we wanted to be. And, you know, many in our community of organizers and activists say, well, there are ways in which that is who we have been. And of course, this country was built on many different versions of that same wrong, um, generations worth of versions of that wrong. Um, But we are trying to do better, that we should always be trying to do better. And the fact that it has been done and was done so many, so many times before, is not a reason why we should allow these things to continue to happen. And when we have made progress and and when we see people being successful and and we see people with more obvious immigrant backgrounds leading um becoming elected officials when we see refugees elected to congress from african countries and you know we should recognize that if we don't say no to these things in one way or the other. I'm not saying that we will lose our identity on November 3rd if things don't go a particular way. But if if we don't start speaking out about these issues, the way that people are in the street talking about other, you know, violence by law enforcement, that's a conversation. This is not the first time we've been having it, but it's long overdue to be having it again. And um you know i i think that's the the impact of entrenching the direction we've been going is is really i i think there's a way in which i don't know that we can ever regain moral legitimacy as a a defender of human rights if if we keep Embracing policies like these or tolerating policies like these, you know, Canada recently removed the United States from its list of safe third countries to which people seeking asylum could be relocated instead of Canada, because they they have determined that our policies are not fair and equitable and humane toward people seeking refuge. Um, And that's our next door neighbor, (laughs) you know, that's one of our closest allies. And, um, and so when we try to have power and legitimacy around the world and, and use the Statue of Liberty as a symbol of who we are, use the Lady Justice as a symbol of who we are while continuing in this direction, I, I think the impact of that is something that, that regardless of what your specific policy views are on different aspects of immigration, just take a step back and look at what this says about the kind of people that we are and our willingness to right to, to give a hand to people who need it who are desperate and also to embrace people who have something new to offer to us um that should be who we are that is the identity we were all taught as children and right. um and even to the extent that there's always been a lie underneath that that that's our responsibility is to make that better to to try to minimize the lie maximize the truth of of the dream that we all got taught in school
0: right it's like you know the, the credibility that we may still have however you know kind of ill-gotten or kind of ill not undeserved it may be i think that you know what we've been describing here and like what a lot so has been dealing with is just kind of like treating people with human dignity, you know, whether you're an immigrant or you're trans or you're black or you're, you know, even a criminal. You know, I think that people deserve to be um, recognized as human beings. And I think our policies need to reflect that. And I don't care if your issues around kind of women's, you know, reproductive health or immigrant rights or the LGBT communities, you know, uh, fight to kind of attain equality uh, and escape violence like. These are all connected issues. It's just people's like lack of willingness to treat one another with the respect that we would wanna be treated with and the policies that we end up having uh, reflect people's unwillingness to do that. So I really do think that like this whole reckoning is like the giant reckoning of all of this. It's like, are we people who care about that? Are we a country that's willing to admit our shortcomings in the past and our shortcomings in the present in order to like develop a new way forward. Um, And I think you said it extremely spot on, like entrenching this direction, um, I kind of dams us to a future where that is never again who we are. If we ever were, it definitely will not be that way in the future. And so I think that that should scare People of all political persuasions, because all of us want to believe that we live in a country that stands for something of value, that stands for something aspirational and that, you know, kind of gives people from around the world who are as talented as you could possibly be a platform to exchange and develop and kind of fully realize their ideas and ambitions. And like, that's how we've gotten away with all this is that if no matter where you're born, if you're like, I have something special and there's only one place in the world to go make sure that I maximize the potential of that, it's America. And that's why we've been able to get away with so many of these injustices because we were still able to credibly present that as an option for people. And I feel like we've undermined that substantially um, in recent years. And I think that like we have a lot of road to cover if we're to ever kind of convince people again that that's something that we offer and i think that that is something that's really special the fact that we have so many immigrants here unlike every other country there's people from everywhere here and if we start to say that that is we want then the promise of this nation is um is done for so with that all being said, how can we get involved in the fights that you're involved with, Lauren, um, and kind of any specific calls to action that you'd like to tell us about um, before we conclude? This has been really, really wonderful. And I really appreciate you kind of sharing your expertise and your feelings um, from Lauren, but built upon you know many, many years of service and activism and kind of experience with this on the front lines. It's been very valuable. Well,
2: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm happy to have this conversation um, with anyone who wants to know more about it. I I think there's a few different levels on which people can get involved. Some less direct and more personal, um, and and some more political. <laughs> and so I'll give you options, kind of at every end. Um, right. So starting with the more personal and um, and, and kind of one's own life. Um, so first of all um this is an area where there is a you know there of course there's always a tie into capitalism uh so i you know you can look at your uh personal investments or retirement funds or things like that and find out if you are invested in private detention companies. Um, and just as there has been a movement to divest from those companies um, for the purposes of ending mass criminal incarceration, as as Grisel said so correctly, there really is no separation. The the detention center where Most of uh, our clients live during their cases is is actually um, funded by a contract with the U.S. Marshals to hold people in federal criminal custody and the ICE. The ice portion of the contract is just a rider on the criminal contract. So it's built to be a criminal jail and, and many of these um, agreements are just with county jails to lease out county jail space for people in immigration custody. But when that's happening for profit. You know, ask yourself: Do I want my retirement or my wealth to be funded on the backs of of these people who are being held in these cages? Do I want my financial interest to be at odds with um, what I think is right? And uh, and and so I think in general, one should try to di- divest oneself from the incarceration industry. Um, but I. It's a personal choice, <laughs> it depends on one's attitudes towards divestment. That, that's one thing one could do that's a concrete action. Um, I also think it's valuable for those who are interested in this kind of thing. If your family has an immigration or asylum seeking story of your own, that you have any kind of access to, I think it's valuable to to learn from the experiences of your own family. What what brought your family here and, and maybe even what were the policies like? You know, people like people who did have a relative come through Ellis Island can look at the Ellis Island logs. Um, Certainly, I you know, I know many people whose story was a a kidnapping and enslavement story. It it can be very painful to visit that story. But even that, I think, has the same kind of value that your family's journey in whatever form it took to arrive in this country. Sort of being informed about that and considering it I think will aid you toward having empathy for people who are making journeys that are either similar or not. you know at, at this moment in time maybe motivated by some of the same factors for a lot of people um th- those are sort of personal things one can do I-, I think there are also certainly a lot of great um immigrant and refugee voices in media and culture uh that that one can um, follow um i i can provide a list i don't i don't want to leave anybody out but um You know, I think there's a lot of great things going on in journalism right now around this issue, and especially as Christelle said voices of people who are personally impacted or have experienced these things, people who have immigrated lawfully and want to share those stories uh, of treatment and bureaucracy and all of those things, people who came seeking asylum, every flavor of uh, story of arrival in this country from another is, is out there. And again, I think just informing oneself about the personal stories is such an important part of really understanding. This is not just a policy issue. There is almost no policy issue. That's just a policy issue. It always boils down to impacts on people. And right. just to
0: touch upon that, I think that that's really at the heart of this. It's like you read these statistics, you know, you read the kind of like metadata about what's happening. But these are people. These are people's lives. These are people's fears and hopes and dreams and families. And I think that everything we can do to kind of tie the statistic to the person is, is very, very powerful. I mean, you see this with COVID all the time. It's like these numbers of COVID deaths are so overwhelming, but you know, they're numbers, but like when you actually start digging into the people and the, and the impacts and all that, that's when you understand like the, the true devastation that it's raw. And this is the same exact thing with our policies around immigration. So just wanted to kind of put that in there.
2: Yeah, and um and just like there are personal things to do that that are surround you know that's around race and and gender and, and sex um you know just you can buy black and buy immigrant at the same time <laughs> you know that that's often true, especially if you live here in Southern California or in Florida or in New York, there's a lot of, you know, black owned immigrant owned businesses that one can support. Um, And, you know, immigrants start businesses at a much higher rate than um, US born people do. Um, Because it takes a certain kind of initiative to make that kind of journey and sacrifice and take that risk to go live in a different country. Um, and, And that correlates to a lot of other you know, character strengths. Um, but then on the policy level, there's the local, right? Um, I think Griselle touched on a lot of that. But here in Southern California, for example, and this is happening all over the country, but a number of our local communities um, have been motivated by activists and organizers and immigrant rights community to um, adopt welcoming cities' uh, proclamation saying, you know, the city of San Diego is, well, you know, welcomes immigrants, welcomes people from all over the world um, as residents of this community, as members of this community, that citizenship has levels. There's technical federal citizenship, then there's just cultural citizenship in a country. And then there's you know, the citizenship we live most regularly, which is living in your neighborhood or your city or your state um, and the people that you see every day. You don't know unless someone tells you when you go to the bakery or go to the coffee shop who's serving you that was born in the U.S. or who came here with asylum. Or And, you know, when you do learn, you remember <laughs> but, uh, and, and recognize that person who I have this sort of daily connection with, even if it's just the kind of smile and all of that. Um, Um, that that's what makes a community. And and so having communities recognize we we embrace the strength of the the diverse population of people who live here and we want people to feel welcome to come here. That's a very, easy thing in terms of doesn't cost any money to issue that kind of proclamation it does not require any commitment of resources or policies It's, it's just a statement of values um and and then los angeles has and san diego has now adopted as well an office of immigrant affairs to welcome new immigrants into the city recognizing that if you're coming not just to the united states but to any particular community and trying to figure out you know, how to get a driver's license or where you can park and where you can't park or all those different things that come with living in a new place. They're even harder if you're not familiar with them from some other city in the country. Um, and then. When it comes to politics, I'll start local, which is, you know, we talked a lot about there's there's only so much that cities and counties can do in the world of immigration policy. Um, but. You've, you've heard this in other realms, but it's also true. Ask your candidates for local prosecutors, whether that's district attorney or city attorney is what we call it here in San Diego, what most of the California jurisdictions call it. So the city attorney is the person who prosecutes low level offenses, misdemeanors and infractions. But just because it's not a felony doesn't mean it, it can't have serious immigration consequences. And so asking those people, do you, do you have a policy about how you negotiate cases when the person accused of the crime is not a citizen of the United States do you take that into consideration do you consider alternatives to the deportable crime and when you're resolving cases and really organize around candidates who are thoughtful on those issues um, a city attorney's office also uh, can be involved in litigation either for the administration or against the administration so um, there was a a lawsuit uh, filed by the federal government against the state of California. And many local city attorneys and and county attorneys uh, filed briefs in support of the state, in support of our policies, saying we do not want to spend California's resources, um, you know, detaining or locking up our own residents to do the federal government's agenda. And we don't agree with that agenda either. Um, And, you know, San Diego County was one that went the other way. Um, And so the people that you elect to your county board of supervisors, the people you elect to be your city or county attorneys, they they have a role in the positions that your municipality or your county takes on issues of immigration, which, again, if we do end up going further down this path at the federal level, um, then. you know, the local the local power and local resistance and, and recognizing those levels of citizenship that the, the city, the county, the state can't do anything about what benefits the federal government, what privileges the federal government does and does not bestow on people. But you're, there's no reason why your city can't treat someone with the same respect, with the same level of benefits and privileges, regardless of their national origin, local law enforcement doesn't have to enforce and shouldn't be enforcing federal civil laws. And, um, and so I think, really thinking about what kind of officials and it really shouldn't be partisan, right? I mean, this should, this should reflect a recognition of the value, you know, that that most of Most of or many of the major corporations in this country have been founded by immigrant entrepreneurs, certainly a large portion of our academic sector and our technical sector relies on The brightest people from all over the world choosing to come here and study and then when they develop great ideas or come up with great research putting that into practice and so if you're a business oriented person you also can be sold on the value of embracing immigrants and you know every scholar who doesn't want to come here because they don't want to deal with the visa process or they don't want to you know find out that they're not allowed to land at the airport you know the day that their flight takes off because there's been some new presidential proclamation every one of those people that this community loses uh that that any community loses you know that that's a resident of that community that's a neighbor or a parent or a colleague or a teacher or a mentor and and i, I a vaccine think seed
0: creator <laughs> exactly
2: know? exactly and we should we should get you know we should get beyond partisan Politics on this one. There are pieces of it that that may be partisan for quite some time, but there are pieces of it that really are just human decency. Um, and um, so that you know, I think those are the local things, state and local things one can do, and you know, just raise these issues, um, especially populist communities our our coastal areas or any place with a large urban population where there's likely to be more enforcement your your state and local government should be taking a stand on this also if your community relies on agriculture you know take a look in the mirror at you know who you are and and what makes your community strong and and just own that and and embrace it um and um and then or at I least I'll be
0: blatantly hypocritical and, you know, immoral. It's like you see someone's
2: yeah. yeah. I don't want to read any more articles about the small town that is sad that their favorite restaurant owner no longer lives in town, um, who never took the time to know that person enough to know that. The policies they supported in theory or in the abstract affected someone they know personally um, and and I, I think, you know, there's a broader conversation to that there about what it means to not talk about politics. Uh, you know, I think immigration, you know, much like the relationship that communities have with law enforcement. Um, those of us who have never had to think about it in our personal lives may think, well, immigration is just a political issue, but there are people for whom that political issue is a necessary part of their day to day life. Um, and, you know, whether it's professionally or personally, um, it, it it's the the fact that people won't talk about these issues that they've cabined off as politics, I think is part of the problem. And, And so, and that's why local, a lot of state and local officials don't take stands on these things because they can't change what the federal policy is directly. Um, They can make it harder to implement, they can they can challenge its legality in court, um, and they can emphasize the effects that it has on real people. They can speak for the people they represent. Um, And then obviously at the federal level, um, there are so many things. I mean, we talk about the executive because that's where most of this power is. And but at the same time, there has been a lot going on in Congress to try to change various parts of this. Um, And so I I think when you're, you know, if you're the kind of person who goes to congressional candidate forums or or who communicates with people running for Senate um, that you can ask. You know what are your positions about federal immigration policy? What kind of laws would you support? Do you support immigration reform? Do you support uh, sort of a permanent implementation of the what what DACA was intending to achieve, which is some path to legal legal status and ideally citizenship for those who want it for people who um, you know currently don't have such a path. Um, and and you know what other immigration reforms do people support ask those questions of candidates make them aware where do you
0: stand tommy that, <laughs> you know? that
2: everybody cares that it's not just you know radicals on both sides but the ordinary american voters care The same way that they care about education or gun policy or taxes or you know anything else that the federal government does that that they care about immigration too, not just because it personally affects them or they have strong feelings about it that they they have human feelings about it. Um, But then at the same time, if you see injustice in your community, it actually is. Congress people and senators who can kind of step in in those emergencies. They, every senator's office, for example, has a sort of staff member whose job is, is to specifically address constituent calls that are relating to um, immigration issues. Uh, that's especially true in California, where, where we have such a large immigrant population. But if you live in New York or Florida or Texas or, you know, anywhere, um, if you know if your senator's office doesn't have something like this, ask them why not. But um, there are things that those those offices can do. To they have a more direct line to the agency to you know pressure them to exercise discretion. And you've seen these things come up, the calls they get, the reports that they receive firsthand, those then make their way into hearings when there are congressional hearings on how the policies are being implemented or why decisions are getting made and what's being taken into consideration. And and so don't be afraid to use your voice and communicate. If, if you or someone you know personally or, or care about your community is being affected and you think there's something that your congressperson or senator might be able to do or at the same time if you just want to make them aware of something if you say you know every time I go to take my kids to school and I'm a citizen and my children are citizens but I see Border Patrol in the neighborhood um, you know why and can you talk to them about this because this doesn't seem good, you know? And um, and so that all of that is just ways that a person can um, address immigration issues. Um, but then there are lots of different ways to also use your time or treasure to help. Um, we've talked about a lot of different agencies, you know. Both Cristel and I work for nonprofit organizations that are happy to um, accept anything that people are able to to provide and and we're always grateful when people can support the work Um, there's also a lot of need for people to donate to funds that help pay for the liberation of of people who have conditions set and just can't afford to meet them so there are a lot of immigration bond funds and and i've given you some information about those that you can share Uh, and but i mean anyone can look for immigration bond funds and there are some that are regional that specifically free people from particular jails and there are some that are national where someone from anywhere in the united states who either has a client or a friend or a neighbor or family member locked in an immigration jail can ask that fund to help pay a bond once a bond has been set um and uh and then there's so many different skills that people might have um that can be helpful either to advocates or just volunteering directly with immigrants and it does depend on where you live to some extent but in this time where everything's happening remotely um you know it really depends on whether you want to use your professional skills to help or just language skills that you happen to have or
0: or you just want to you know, be even, a pen
2: even, pal, you, you know? Uh, I, mean. I mean,
0: even even communication skills and art skills. I mean, I want to spotlight one project, which I think you're aware of. is called In Plain Sight, which was an effort between artists and writers and sky typing, a sky typing company to type messages over detention centers throughout the U.S., which, um, you know, which A, kind of makes people aware that they're actually near a detention center, but also kind of provides a message for those who are incarcerated, those who are doing the incarcerating and the kind of wider public to consider um, what is happening to these people under these systems. And that's a really innovative way for, you know, if artists and sky typers can collaborate in a way that raises awareness and kind of draws attention to this issue, You know the anyone with any kind of communication skill or any kind of professional skill or kind of educational ability um i think can contribute so i don't think it's people i mean both you and grizel are attorneys and obviously you're doing a lot of the kind of like on the ground work to kind of fight for people but it's not just people with a legal background i think anyone who uh kind of cares about other people and you know you treat this as you treat any other kind of cause you care about there's a way to get involved if you're motivated so um i just wanted to put that out there too because i think so many people think this is so overwhelming and so legal and so kind of hard to nudge that they will just leave it to the lawyers and the advocates and the judges and the cops it's like no everyone needs to play a role on this if you want it to change that's
2: absolutely right that's absolutely right and and i think just continuing to pay attention to what's happening you know and just like any issue read critically look for the more personal stories um that that actually explain more than one perspective on these things. Um, and yeah, any, anyone who wants to come to the border and see for themselves uh, when that's a safe thing to do again, just let me know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I think on, just, you know, yeah, be, being aware and and staying engaged and uh, this issue in this time you know, there there are a few issues that really resonate the idea that. You know, no one person is free until everyone is free, that e- each of our liberation is bound up together. You know, th- this is one of those issues, I would say sort of immigration and human rights, as well as climate change are those those two. And I mean, the pandemic has brought this on us as well, that um, there, there's disease everywhere. There's poverty everywhere. There's violence everywhere. And there, there's also, here in the United States, there's more than enough resources, more than enough land, more than enough kindness and time for everyone who needs it. Um, it and and so, you know, the only way that that we can possibly say no is, is if we don't want to believe that, if, if we if we want to believe if we want to accept the people who tell us that there isn't enough, that it's dangerous to share, that it's dangerous to spread that wealth around or to welcome people or to give people help when they need it. Um, our, our history has shown the opposite. Um, and. And, and so I, I think this issue at this time is really, really telling, you know, at this time when we have the privilege of being in a really large country, but we're having this conversation while people in this very populous state we live in are being displaced by natural disaster and, you know, having having to flee their homes, not not because of armed militias or, you know, or violent uh, criminals or anything like that but just just because of nature and and i think um if if we can't start to see at this time when people have relied so much on you know technology and charity and and the resources the federal government or their state and local governments have to offer to keep people safe, keep people alive, keep people connected. If, if we can't recognize now how important it is for us to all see each other as fellow human beings first <laughs> before we see each other as what we look like or where we come from or, or what kind of job skills we have or, you know, then um, it. It's the only way we're going to survive everything that the world has to throw at us.
0: And it's not done, you know, so I think that, like, that's that's a very kind of good note to end on, is that if, if we haven't seen what we need to see to kind of turn this around and understand that this is the only forward that will work, for everyone is to understand that, that we have more in common than we don't. And that this scarcity, fearful mindset is what limits us. It's not the actual reality of our resources. It's like how we choose to think about them. And the more we share and the more we welcome, actually the more there is. And so I think that, yeah, if we don't start to, if we haven't seen enough now, then I guess we don't just, des- we deserve what comes. Um, Well, thank you so much, Lauren. Um, I will post the resources that you've sent to kind of send people your way and to yourselves way. Um, The one other thing I'll say, which I'll say until November, is another way to contribute is to vote. You know, you do not. Uh, the one thing that we can all do in this country, at least those who kind of like have the status to do so, is to make your voice heard, to vote for the people who support your values, who will kind of get behind the things that we're talking about today. And so I really hope that if you are watching this, you're someone who gets that already, but maybe you know a ton of people who are on the fence about that somehow. And like, please do what you can to make sure that those people understand the the gravity of what is taking place here. So again, thank you so much for having-
2: People who aren't citizens can't vote. So if you don't care, find a person, you know, whether that's someone, you know, from, you know, from the coffee shop or from the neighborhood or from your own family. Uh, But Ask them pers- that person why the election is important to them and use that to motivate you. Um, because, you know, not everybody gets that privilege. Who lives in this country, who pays taxes, who contributes, who serves in the military. You know, um, so, uh, you know, recognize that it is a privilege. It's not a right, you know, and um, use it
0: wisely. Please. Um, Well, keep up the good fight, Lauren. Thank you so much again, and uh, thank you for tuning in to What We're Gonna Do. Have a great day.
2: Bye-bye.